friends, and welcome to a new era of Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. And you can catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern on your favorite local EWTN affiliate, or you can find us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio Channel 130. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have an eye-opening show for you today. As we focus on religious liberty, this is one of our favorite topics, and also a very important topic as we head into what promises to be a White House administration that is not going to be a friend of religious liberty. We're going to start with some atrocious acts that are taking place against Christians in Africa. We're going to look at Nigeria specifically with Eric Patterson, who's the Executive Vice President for Religious Freedom Institute. We're also going to get a real account of some of the issues facing Christians and Catholics in India with Tim and Rebecca Shaw, who've been working for years in advancing religious liberty throughout the world. But first, we're going to touch base with my good friend and TCA colleague Ashley McGuire. Given the rather shocking news of this past week, President-elect Joe Biden chose former California Attorney General Javier Becerra to head the Health and Human Services Department. This is an extreme pick given Becerra's track record on issues of life and religious liberty. There's a lot to be concerned about and a lot to talk about. Welcome back to the show, Ashley. Hey, it's great to be with you. Ashley, we just had to have you on because I know that this is a topic that really interests you, that you've written on before. And uh, really, it's a topic that should interest all Catholics. The naming of California Attorney General Javier Becerra to head the HHS, or at least talk about heading the HHS when and if a Joe Biden administration starts. Yeah, no, I think this is really important, and I think it's it's important on, on so many levels, but let's start with the fact that Joe Biden very aggressively campaigned on his Catholic faith and made that sort of a centerpiece of his campaign. And then in addition to that, campaigned on this idea of unity, that he was going to unify the country. And then he goes and makes one of his first cabinet picks, someone who is super divisive. I mean, a real slap in the face to conservatives uh, because Becerra has such a reputation for being an ideologue, um, but you know, even more so, an insult to Catholics because he's a man who has basically made his career out of harassing Catholics, and most famously among them, the Little Sisters of the Poor, who he was just unrelenting with, continuing to drag them through courts all the way back to the Supreme Court, where thankfully they won. And so I think it's unfortunately his choice of uh, Xavier Becerra to head HHS is really gives you a pretty good idea of what he actually meant when he said uh, that he wanted to unify the country. I feel like all this talk about olive branches, you know, in the in the news, the Democrats are talking about olive branches, and I'm thinking Javier Becerra is a stick in the eye. It's not an olive branch. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually. That's but really what it is. It's, a, it's truly amazing. And, and you know what scares me is that the head of HHS, that's a tremendously sensitive cabinet post. The HHS controls so many intimate aspects of Americans' lives. You can't overestimate the, the amount of ways that the HHS, everything the HHS does touches us in our daily lives and in the, and in the ways that are most intimate and, and near. Right. And and what are his qualifications, by the way? I mean, he's a lawyer. I mean, what's his background in health other than suing nuns over their refusal on conscience grounds to provide abortion pills in their health care plans? Serious question. <laughs> you mean he's not a doctor? He doesn't even play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> when Obamacare 
came online, I remember learning to my dismay that many, there's countless times in this very long legislation that is, that is Obamacare, this law, and that, that it says this will be up to the discretion of the Secretary of HHS. Frankly, it's a lot of responsibility and it's being handed to a man who has proven himself to be inimical to the values and ideals of, I would say, most Americans. Because you don't have to be somebody who would call themselves pro-life to be very, very sure that abortion should have, you know, sane, common sense limits. That abortion can't just be a free-for-all where, where the personal freedom of women is completely held up over the future and the, and the health and the lives of children. Right. And I mean, again, another example of just what an extreme ideologue he is. Um, he was the one who led the prosecution of the Planned Parenthood whistleblower, David Delayden. I mean, he was, I think I'm right in that he was the first citizen journalist who's ever been criminally prosecuted for exposing all kinds of things about Planned Parenthood. Everything from the fact that they were engaged in illegal organ harvesting and trafficking to being extremely negligent about their patients and their patient's health. If he was truly serious about the safety and the health of women, he would have at least taken seriously some of the the issues that those undercover videos raised in terms of um, whether or not these women were get, being given correct information, the, you know, true consent, whether or not they were in, um, you know, safe environments. And instead, he just chose to completely try to legally crush a citizen of goodwill who was trying to expose um, illegal and fraudulent behavior of America's largest abortion chain. So that's the kind of guy who's, as you point out, is going to be um, making incredibly important decisions about not just abortion but every single aspect of Americans health care and you know that in that case he chose the side of the well-moneyed deep-pocketed medical quote-unquote lobby not the interests of the patient so what is he going to do for the rest of, of health care in this country you know I, I have to object Ashley to you calling Planned Parenthood the medical side <laughs> yeah I'm sorry I don't know why I said that can we delete that <laughs> No, it'll have to stay, but I just I just want to put a marker there. Planned Parenthood doesn't do health care. They do abortion, and they do a lot of lobbying. They spend a ton of money on lobbying and getting what they want through through the laws, through Congress. They, Javier Becerra has 100% approval from Planned Parenthood and the rest of the abortion lobby because he has delivered for them, 24 years he was in Congress, he delivered 100% of the time. This is just amazing that, that Joe Biden, a man who's been campaigning on his Catholic faith, should put a man like that as head of HHS. He voted to support partial birth abortion, a gruesome procedure that any person with half a conscience or half a heart would have to say it has to be made illegal. I mean, to remove children from their mothers at that late stage of pregnancy with that kind of callous indifference to just the, the fact that they feel pain is horrible. He also voted to support sex-selective abortion, which is used to discriminate against baby girls generally. And also he voted, he voted against parental notification for girls who are being trafficked across state lines um, in order to obtain abortions against parental notification, any parent listening to this should be disgusted with the idea that, you know, adult men abusing girls should have more rights over them than the parents who are 
who are put on this earth to take good care of our daughters. With that sort of litany that you just listed, I think, unfortunately, he embodies sort of the typical liberal extremist on abortion who's totally out of step with the American public on the issue, which is very much moderate and supportive of common sense restrictions that and protections that support and protect women and children and girls. And so, you know, I think everything about him is terrible. <laughs> but the thing that's so incredibly disappointing is to see, as you pointed out, Joe Biden, who's spent so much time making such a big deal out of his Catholicity, pick someone who's so opposed to Catholic values to Catholic religious liberty. I mean, another important role that he's going to have is over the religious liberty of healthcare workers. And this is something that this administration has been so incredible on, is making, going through and actually implementing policies that are already on the books designed to protect the conscience rights of healthcare workers and strengthening areas where those protections were weak. And this is a real sort of front line, I think, in the religious liberty battles is this attempt by ideologues to make doctors and nurses and pharmacists complicit in abortion, violate their conscience, dispense things like abortion pills. And, you know, again, let's look at his own record. And this is a guy who was happy even after the Supreme Court thought it had sorted this issue out with the Little Sisters of the Poor to drag them back into the court courts for years and try to make the Little Sisters of the Poor, not just doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, but also the Little Sisters of the Poor have to entangle themselves with things like abortion bills. Well, he's no friend, as we see, to religious liberty. He's no friend to the dignity of life, no friend to women and children. But he's also no friend to freedom of speech. And we have to remember also about him that he tried to force, almost succeeded, but the Supreme Court defended us, thank God. He tried to force pregnancy support centers that are run by pro-life people. I work at one of these, for instance. He tried to force them to advertise for abortion and refer for abortion. And in other words, for these centers that... The reason they exist is to help women who want to bring their children into the world, to help them do that, to help young couples who need material assistance so that they don't have to resort to abortion. So he wanted to, he wanted to force them to put signs in their waiting rooms telling them where the nearest abortion facility was. In other words, to send the business to Planned Parenthood. So it all comes around in a neat circle, but this is not a friend of free speech and, and the rights of Americans to go out there and do good things without being forced, without being hijacked into supporting evil corporations like Planned Parenthood. Yeah, it's I I'd almost forgotten about that one. There's just so many bad things about him. But that one, you're right, is, you know, a, sort of a double affront. It was well, really a, a triple affront because many of those pregnancy resource centers are um, religious. They're run out of churches. They're, they have faith-based missions and they do this because their faith compels them to help women who are in crisis. It was an affront to free speech and it was an affront to the pro-life movement. And it was a, that whole lawsuit, another one that he took all the way to the Supreme Court, which thankfully, again, he lost, just made a mockery of the whole idea of choice. Because in many respects, that's what those centers exist to provide women a choice so that, you know, you have Planned Parenthood, this monolith, and they were trying to offer women who don't want to live with the scar of abortion for the rest of their life, who want an alternative. And he couldn't even tolerate the idea of that. And that, again, just shows sort of how close-minded he is and how very much in the grip of the abortion lobby he is. It's almost unbelievable 
unbelievable that someone like that could be nominated for such an important position. I, I hope that there's a lot of outcry against it and that Americans wake up. And, you know, you mentioned before, and this is very true, most Americans, even those who call themselves pro-choice, most Americans believe in common sense restrictions on these procedures. Right. And, you know, I think no matter what happens with the election in Georgia, we're looking at a very closely divided Senate. And I think it's not implausible that he might not be confirmed because he is so extraordinarily controversial um, because of what he represents. And, you know, I think that he should get asked really hard questions about, you know, why should a man who's made a career out of legally harassing nuns over abortion pills, who has absolutely no credentials in the field of, of health and who has such an extreme record, why should he be in, like the second most powerful person in this country uh, when it comes to the health care of Americans? I think there's real questions that he should be asked hard questions. Do you think our listeners should be aware of this, maybe uh, encouraging their senators to fight hard against this kind of nomination? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is, of all of the of all of the people that Joe Biden has said he plans to put forward, this is the one that counts. I think it, it's the one that counts for Catholics, counts for religious liberty, counts for life. And I think absolutely that senators should hear from people that uh, they don't want an extremist in charge of the Department of Health and Human Services and that his nomination is a real slap in the face to to Catholics, to Christians in this country, and to Americans of goodwill. Well, we're going to be keeping a, an eye on that, Ashley, and I thank you for talking about this with me. I hope that our listeners get energized and make those phone calls when and if this comes up. So thank you very much, Ashley. Always a pleasure, Gracie. We now switch gears and we're going to focus the rest of the hour on religious freedom issues around the world. First, looking at the terrible situation in Nigeria. Eric Patterson is vice president at the Religious Freedom Institute and an expert on Nigeria. And he joins us now from D.C. Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. We're big fans of the Religious Freedom Institute. And can you tell our listeners who might not have heard about you, about your institute, what do you do exactly? The Religious Freedom Institute is based in Washington, D.C., we have offices on Capitol Hill, and we look at the <laughs> foremost challenges in domestic religious freedom as well as in international religious freedom. And what we do is we do the research, we bring the evidence to the people who make policy decisions about the best ways to handle religious freedom problems. And we also go to leaders and make the case, particularly in foreign countries, but increasingly here in the U.S. as well, about why some policies that are restrictive of religious practice and religious people, why those policies are not in the best interests of their country. And we work winsomely and persuasively to get those policies changed. Now, a lot of people think that religious freedom leads to religious disagreement and that religious disagreements lead to bad politics and, and bad times. You have a different approach to this. You have a different view. And this, is, and this is the view that you propose to different governments. And what is that view? That's right. The, the truth of the matter is, is that it's actually religious repression that breeds violence and instability in so many places around the world. In the United States, look how great our two centuries, 250 years plus have been, where people could disagree when about issues of faith and religion, but not come to blows, not come to violence. And why is that? Well, it's because of a high level of, of respect among citizens 
for difference. What we see in other places is that often governments will repress religious groups, religious individuals, and those people will turn to terrorism, to criminality, to violence, to push back against the regime. You know, it's pretty interesting that countries that that are quite monochromatic in their religion, a place like Saudi Arabia, are still the most likely to repress their own people. And opening up to allow a level of citizenship freedom in areas of public and private expressions of faith, that is a recipe for greater tolerance and greater stability. Repression leads to terrorism. That is, that's really interesting. It's it's pretty much the opposite of what a lot of people take to be gospel as far as religious plur pluralism. And and it does make a lot of sense to me. And in some kind, even in, I was thinking as you were speaking, Catholic countries like Mexico and Spain, where 99 plus percent of the population before used to be Catholic, um, had terrible times of anti-clericalism and, and religious repression. Perhaps they could have used some of the advice from the Religious Freedom Institute back then. One would have hoped. Well, that's why we have a reason to, to work and to exist today. We argue for religious freedom for everyone, everywhere. And what I've usually found is that someone who, a group that's a minority on one side of a border is majority on the other side of the border. That's so often the case around the world. If you think about India and Pakistan, or you think about Bangladesh, you think about Burma and these other places, and if instead of repressing your minority and causing regional conflict with your neighbors, a very different approach would be to simply say, we're going to have the same rules, we're going to have the same laws for every law-abiding citizen in our country. That's a recipe, that's a very practical recipe for peace and security. Turning to Nigeria, I'm assuming that's not happening in Nigeria. And some of the most um, just atrocious headlines and the saddest things, some of the saddest things I've ever read about happened recently in Nigeria when over 30 farmers were actually beheaded and with over 100 killed in one attack by Boko, I think it was Boko Haram, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. And there are at least 10 women that are still missing. What exactly happened and, and who do we think is responsible? Well, this, this is just one incident that goes back over some time. I mean, it's estimated that <clears throat> the numbers vary, but as many as 80 or 90,000 citizens have been killed by Boko Haram since 2009. The attacks you're talking about are just the latest instances of a very, very bloody year, uh, a year that many of us point to Christmas of 2019 as the beginning of a year of violence. Uh, around the Christmas holidays last year, Boko Haram attacked passenger buses. They released the, mu the Muslims, and they then they killed the Christians. They've been attacking priests and pastors and seminarians in the country. Uh, there was a particularly graphic video that was published on December 26th of last year of the execution of 10 Christian, prince, uh, 10 Christian prisoners, and interestingly, a moderate Muslim, we believe, as well. And then this, these, these attacks have gone on and on all year by Boko Haram. And clearly, what Boko Haram is doing is trying to terrorize Christians to leave the northern parts of Nigeria, or just cleanse them by death outright. This number that you said, eighty to ninety thousand, that is in one year. I know that. So that large number is a is a snapshot of from two thousand nine through uh, twenty twenty. But think about how many people that is That's eighty to ninety thousand deaths at the hands of this terrorist organization in northern Nigeria. It's a it's it's not just criminal deaths. I mean, this is a this is a civil war. And who is Boko Haram? So Boko Haram started 
in the mid-2000s, not as an organized movement, but as almost a saying or a phrase, almost like the V for Vendetta type of movie, where people would would act out, they would do individual acts of terrorism under this under this rubric, which was a rubric that was saying no to everything in the West. Hmm. Boko Haram's initial impetus was a was an anti-Western, anti-Western capitalism, Christianity, the whole mix statement. But that coalesced by 2009 increasingly into an actual terrorist organization that over the past decade has become increasingly organized and disciplined essentially as a militia. There's actually at least two wings of this. I won't get into that right now. But five years ago, the leader of Boko Haram swore allegiance to ISIS. And so there's a very strong connection in terms of the ideology of Boko Haram, this anti-Western, anti-Christian ideology that they share with Islamic State. And the members of Boko Haram are Muslim? Or are they just anti-Christian and, and they they collect all sorts of adherents? No, that's a good... It's, it is a narrow part of, of Islam. These are violent Sunni Islamists. Mm. They're people who want every part of life to look like the life of the Prophet Muhammad in those early centuries of Islam. Interestingly, you know who they're in, in the northern part of Nigeria, where Boko Haram has its major activity, they are very likely to kill fellow moderate Muslims as well, as well as to attack Shia Muslims, which make up about 25% of Nigeria. So they're Sunnis, they're influenced by the type of ideology that was first with Al-Qaeda and then later with ISIS that is, a, that is violent, and they want to purify the land on behalf of their version of militant Islam. And what is the demographic uh, breakdown of Nigeria in general? Yeah, according to uh, the U.S. government's surveys, Nigeria is about half and half between Muslim and Christian. It leans slightly uh, low 50 percentile uh, Muslim, high 40 percentile Christian, and then some other indigenous uh, religions, particularly in the South. So that is a, and, and the majority of the North is Muslim, the majority of the South is Christian, although there's lots of Muslims living in the South, lots of Christians living in the North. But 50-50 for a country of well over 200 million people. And is this a, a demographic that's been in balance like that for some time, or is that is that a shifting demographic? You know, it is shifting in favor of the Muslim population, just due to population growth slightly over the years. For many years, it wasn't precisely clear because Nigeria wasn't doing accurate censuses. It wasn't clear, but clear. But it is this this rough balancing act. And historically, for the past twenty years since the since the last military military dictatorship at the end of the 1980s, the presidency has rotated. A Christian would be president, then a Muslim them back to a Christian, that consensus has recently broken down. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the future. And who, before this, uh, before Boko Haram became such a scourge, the Muslims and the Christians coexist in a, in, a, in a more comfortable way? Yes and no. So there's certainly parts of the country where for, for, for a variety of reasons, uh, there was actually a pretty high level of pluralism in some parts of Nigeria. But there is, in the middle of the country, what, what geographers call the middle belt. There has been, at least since the 1990s, periodic violence between Muslims and Christians. In the past few years, the statistics suggest that 90% of the deaths that are Christian versus Muslim have been Christians dying in that part of the country, in the middle belt of the country. The conflict goes back to the fact that People of one tribe, one ethnic group, are often of one religion. 
and people of a different tribe or of a different mm-hmm. religion. And so a struggle over land, politics, or water, the normal things that people kind of butt up heads against, that those take on a ethno-religious character because it's all or nothing. It's the Muslim House of Fulani's on one side versus the Christian on the other side. And the, a very simple thing can ignite. But what has been happening in that part of the country that's been so dire in recent years is increasing jihadi language, the, the use of jihadist symbols, and the targeting of houses of worship, churches, and the targeting of religious leaders like seminarians and priests by Muslim militants. And that that's an escalation. Last year alone, I think there was 1,100 dead in that part of the country that was Muslim on Christian violence and something like 80 Muslims killed by Christians, if, I, if roughly, if, if I have the statistics right. So the Christians, uh, are they generally just sitting ducks or do they have their own uh, militias and, and organizations to defend themselves? Well, they are not necessarily sitting ducks and there certainly are groups that will try to defend themselves. I think a problem for Nigeria at a higher level is when you have vigilantes of any type or militias, armed citizen groups, this is a problem. It's the breakdown of law and order. But it's because the the police and the and the state armed forces just have not been effective. Either they're looking the other way, they're poorly trained, they're poorly equipped, they have not been able to throttle this violence. And and in some cases, the military and the police are overly heavy handed. They'll go out in a religious procession and start shooting and killing dozens of people who are unarmed. Hmm. So Christians can defend themselves, but of course, what we would want is we'd want law and order so that every citizen, regardless of their faith, would be safe in Nigeria. So you, as an expert on Nigeria, what do you see uh, are some possible solutions um, for this grave situation? Well, the the U.S. government uh, has just recommended naming, uh, Secretary of State released a press release this week, naming Nigeria as a, what we call a country of particular concern. And that takes a, a country that's really a great country with lots of potential and, and rightfully puts it on the same list of religious freedom violators as Iran mm-hmm. and North Korea and China. And that's because so much violence has been directed specifically along ethno-religious lines against Christians, as well as other religious minorities. But the, but the U.S. government also lists in that report, here are the things we'd like to do to help the Nigerian government. We would like to invest in their in their military for the right types of training. We'd like to invest in their police force to protect people. We'd like to invest in rule of law programming. We want to increase conflict resolution programming and research to reduce violence in the country. We want to engage civil society institutions like very high-level religious leaders who have a voice and amplify voices for peace in the country. We want to establish an independent judiciary commission of inquiry to study the facts of what's happened in some of these large-scale massacres, publish reports, which is a step towards both justice and societal conciliation. So the U.S. is not only kind of naming and shaming, but the U.S. is saying we're willing to commit, and I think other European countries would be willing to commit funds to help on the law and order side of this to to push back against terrorism and violence. Well, I hope that uh, some of these things come to pass, Eric. It's very concerning what you tell us about Nigeria. We'll be praying and also for the success of the Religious Freedom Institute and your advocacy for, for these wonderful policies. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. Thanks for the prayers. Prayer is an important component that people can do during this time. Amen. Thank you.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and in this segment, we continue our look at religious freedom worldwide, but we're turning our attention to Asia, specifically to India, to talk to our good friends, Rebecca and Timothy Shaw, who are in Bangalore, where they live and work. They are currently affiliated with the Archbridge Institute, which is a think tank based in D.C., Also, Timothy Shaw is a distinguished research scholar in politics at the University of Dallas. Welcome to the show, Rebecca and Timothy. Good Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Gracie. Great to talk to you. Maybe each of you could just give us a little snapshot of what what you do and what you do in India. Okay, Gracie, I've been uh, nominated to go first, and uh, thank you very much for having us on the show. What I... What I will talk about today is what I have been engaged for some years in working on, and that is to study very carefully the impact of religion, that is religious beliefs, religious practices, religious networks on poverty alleviation. Many people believe that religion is a burden, it's a crutch, it's a hindrance to uh, to progress, to economic uplift. And in fact, what I've been doing for years, and particularly in the last few years, through concerted efforts to study on-the-ground experiences of different practices, different religious practices in India and Sri Lanka, is to, is to try and ascertain very carefully the extent to which religion helps the poor lift themselves out of persistent poverty. And I'll give you two key findings that we had. The first is that people, particularly the poor, who hold deep, who have deeply held religious beliefs and practices, that is, practices and religious beliefs, whether they are Hindu beliefs, Christian beliefs, Uh, Islamic beliefs, but they are deeply held, they are constitutive of who they are. These people uh, exhibit pro-developmental outcomes. What do I mean by that? They exhibit outcomes that are important for their both their family and their economic life. They are, for, let's take Catholics. We're on a Catholic show. We are Catholic. A poor Catholics, Dalit Catholics, that have the freedom to attend religious services weekly or more, who have the freedom to pray alone, who have the freedom to practice, to walk on the road and pray at the shrine of Our Lady, like many did yesterday on her feast day, are more likely to be able to to know the interest rate. This is an informal economy, interest rates are up and down, so we're more likely to know the interest rate. Men, Catholic men, that is, for whom, who have deeply held religious beliefs, are less likely to beat their wives, <laughs> less likely to see other women. So religion has on the ground real life impact. The second finding is we have, and I'll very, very brief, is people who have the freedom, who are given the freedom to to switch religious traditions, regardless of direction, switch out of one tradition into another, who just have that freedom, God-given freedom to access the truth. They also exhibit these wonderfully important pro-developmental, pro-social outcomes. So that is something that I've been studying and trying to get the message across that religion is important 
for the poor. Well, that's really fascinating, Rebecca, and I, I want to follow up on that. But Tim, tell us about uh, what you're doing in India. Sure. Becky is the economist, as you could you could yes. tell her. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the political scientist. And um, my work really focuses on the um, uh, political benefits of religious freedom. And our approach in general here in India and the region is not so much to curse the darkness, uh, to talk about the problems, but try to build on the positive uh, in order, just as you put it beautifully in, in your in your opener, so that individuals and societies can fulfill their potential. And the, the, the work that I'm concentrating, along with uh, Rebecca, in a nutshell, is about trying to build on India's own uh, cultural and spiritual traditions that respect pluralism and tolerance uh, to help India really fulfill its economic and political potential in the face of very grave challenges, you know, among others from a, a very aggressive China. You know, it's interesting, but I, I think when most people think of India, they, they do appreciate that India is a very pluralistic society, that there are uh, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in the kinds, uh, in the ways that people worship. But at the same time, they probably tend to think, well, that that causes a lot of friction. But what you're saying is that that same, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that that same pluralism and that, that freedom to express our relationship to God in so many different ways and in so many different traditions is actually a great plus for India. Yes, absolutely. And you see that across I India's history. India has been an incredible sort of spiritual melting pot, uh, I guess, you know, to borrow a, a metaphor we usually associate with America. St. Thomas, the apostle, uh, we believe, arrived in India in 52 AD, uh, spent 20 years uh, sharing the gospel in uh, probably South India. And India was enough of a place marked by spiritual hospitality, as it were, that the church could flourish and grow uh, uh, over the last uh, 2,000 years, and many other communities have experienced something similar. There's been a functioning Jewish community in India for more than 2,000 years on India's uh, west coast. Uh, so this is really a, a constant feature, and it continues to be a strength uh, of Indian society uh, today in, in most parts of India. And Rebecca, how fascinating too what you were saying about men beating their wives less <laughs> when, they, <laughs> when they're well connected. That, that really caught my attention. And also about the interest rates, which is not something that I would have thought to, uh, as a measure of achieving prosperity, but it makes sense and totally makes sense in, a, in, in the, the economy, which is more uh, complicated than here, for instance, in the United States. Why do these things happen, do you think, that, that religious affiliation and practice help people is it the commute the sense the fact that people are connected to a community or is it is it the fact that it's instilling virtues I, I thank you uh, thank you for asking me this question because it gives me a chance to just expound ever so uh, quickly on on the work actually it's both those things and i'll talk briefly about the community aspect yes um, when people are and this is this is seen in in a lot of work already on the role of religion uh, in in other types of uplift for example there's been significant work as you probably know and you probably already have interviewed people like tyler vanderbilt on, on the role of religion and health 
Uh, he does work on human flourishing, of course. So people who are connected to a religious community are part of that community and they hear about different ways in which they can improve their family. See, now the poor don't have a buffer. They don't have anybody to advocate for them. So when a person, for example, is part of a religious community who is a, who is a Dalit, who is a poor person, and they hear that there is a job going for their son who's just graduated but they don't they don't know how to get their son into a good job in the city but there's someone in the church who knows say mm-hmm. a, a person in a, in a in an organization they can advocate for that person so being connected to an active community is very important and this also brings uh, to light some of the other work that Tim and I are doing is the work on religious institutions. The role of religious institutions and the freedom for religious institutions to operate is critical for the uplift of the poor and in many ways connected to what I've just said. The second one is constitutive and intrinsic and intrinsic importance to the poor. That is religion's intrinsic importance. It gives them a different belief about who they are. It uh, enhances their dignity For example, many of the people who uh, come, not just in the Christian faith, but other parts, kind of seek the truth, meet the transcendent, have a relationship with that, with the transcendent, whoever the transcendent is. In the case of a Hindus, it is certain gods, but for us as Catholics, it's the Lord Jesus and praying uh, to the various saints. It's for them to to reach out, to be beyond their circumstances and know there's a loving providence who's with them every step of the way, who will help them navigate these very bumpy, particularly this year, very bumpy economic, social, familial uh, shocks, troubles that they face. What I try to do is try and quantify that and clarify the mechanism by which religion influences their uplift. It's a very important thing to clear up from your perspective, the way you do it in a very uh, factual way with data, because here in the in the rich West, people have lost that understanding of how the poor really need that the, the connection to the transcendent, the instilling of virtues, community that where they help each other. I myself grew up in the developing world in Mexico, and it, it's a tremendous asset. Religion is a tremendous asset to people who are materially challenged. So it's wonderful that you're quantifying this, making it understandable to people who are thinking in maybe in dollars and cents and in other kinds of quantifiable ways where you can put a price to human flourishing or put a level on human flourishing. So I think that makes a, t- a lot of sense. Now, it was just over a year ago in Easter of 2019 that nine suicide bombers targeted two Catholic churches, an evangelical church and three hotels, killing an estimated 259 people and injuring more than 500. How does... How do the Catholics in the country pick up and 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 go forward after a, an experience like that? Well, they they have done remarkably well um, in uh, Sri Lanka. The the, um, the Catholic community, and, and including the Cardinal Archbishop um, Malcolm Ranjit, um, as well as the Protestant um, community, really worked extraordinarily heroically after those terrible bombings. It, as it happens, Rebecca and I were in Colombo, staying in one of the hotels that had actually been targeted really? by these 
pipe bombers just a few weeks before. We actually were literally, we spent time in the breakfast room that had been a target um, of, um, of one of these suicide bombers. So what happened there is very vivid and real, and we know people who were on the ground working heroically to help the, the victims. The, the, the church is doing one thing in Sri Lanka that's really crucial, and, and it's doing the same in, in India, and that is advocating for the uh, comprehensive importance and value of religious freedom as, as a crucial element of our, of our Catholic social doctrine. We believe in religious freedom as Catholics, not just as a sort of separate individual right, but we, we believe it's, it's, it's a crucial part of what we call integral human development, that a society can't really flourish uh, integrally uh, apart from religious freedom. And unfortunately, Sri Lanka has seen a real decline in religious freedom. And sadly, what happened last year with these bombings were a result of the slow and steady radicalization on the part of, of, of some Muslims in Sri Lanka, which was partly a product of, and has been a product of growing religious repression in Sri Lanka of religious minorities. As, as you know, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist majority country, and there are a number of Buddhist groups that really are trying to drive religious minorities to the margins. Uh, and sadly, those bombings, though this, of course, does not justify the ideology that inspired the bombers, sadly, some of the radicalization that contributed to those bombings and continues to contribute to the violence and conflict in Sri Lanka is a result of religious minorities not being respected and therefore the society not really fulfilling uh, its potential. And, and do you see improvement in that since since these bombings and, and the horrific results of that kind of marginalizing of religious minorities? Uh, sadly, no. The, 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 there have been heroic efforts by the church, including by Protestant um, uh, leaders that, that we work with in Sri Lanka, efforts to uh, really make sure that everyone has a place at the table in Sri Lanka. But unfortunately, partly as a result of those bombings, uh, Sri Lankan society has become much more deeply polarized, uh, and the bombings helped set in motion a series of political events that led to the, the triumph uh, in uh, parliamentary and presidential elections over the last year of a much more nationalist party that is not friendly to religious freedom. That's sad news. Um, we have to it pray. Is. We have to pray for Sri Lanka. We have to pray for Sri Lanka because, unfortunately, what has happened makes makes those very bombings that you uh, I'm so glad you mentioned them it makes that kind of violence unfortunately more more of a, of a likely prospect in the coming months and years now I understand that the country India may have some disadvantages when it comes to internet freedoms and even freedom of the press so how has this impacted Rebecca economic prosperity for the younger generation of India the young people in India have many of them are involved in the IT field as you know some of and I'm here in, uh, in in the in the urban areas. I'm in in Karnataka, which is and uh, in, in Bangalore city, which is called the Silicon Valley of the South. And and I think what's happening in India, and we have the advantage of a youth population. So in some ways, Indian youth have become. Uh, 
uh, how, how do I say it, have used the so social media to, to speak out against these various uh, restrictions. We, in the cities, there has been, uh, they, they still have access to the many of the apps and many of the uh, programs that they use. Recently, India uh, eliminated a few uh, applications on Android and OIS, iOS phones, because... With, China, uh, with its issue with China and those we our own family was quite glad to have gotten rid of a couple of apps because our boys uh, didn't play those crazy games yes but uh, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so, so we were delighted in that respect. But in terms of the impact on young people, young people who are working in the tech field and WhatsApp and other apps, we are, we don't, I mean, we there have been, yes, restrictions in Kashmir, and that was for political reasons. But in urban areas, there ha- I mean, as far as I, I know, there haven't that many restrictions on the youth. And we have still have access to WhatsApp and different other apps. In terms of the press freedom, yes, there have been restrictions, some some restrictions on the press. And I don't, I mean, this is a, a subject, a big subject for another show. And as I said earlier, the young people, many of whom have been educated uh, in in uh, in Western style education here in India or the diaspora returning, are are protesting and India freedom to allow these protests. Um, they still have the young people access Facebook and there's a lot of protests on Facebook, a lot of petitions on Facebook. We see that in the vernacular as well as in English. So that protest and the freedom to protest for the young is still alive and well. Then India may be restricting other freedoms but this uh, for, for young people and uh, uh, their freedom to protest and their freedom to access the internet in certainly in urban areas is still still quite uh, uh strong. Apparently that's something going on all over the world, the struggle between a secular approach uh, to the world's ills and something that includes a transcendent. So I'm glad, I'm glad Rebecca and Tim that you're in India and doing such amazing work. How can we support you from the United States? So what kind, what, how can, what prayer intentions can we, can we hold for you and how can we learn more about your work? Thank you so much. Please do pray uh, for India in a very challenging moment. Uh, the coronavirus has hit India very hard. Hundreds of millions of poor people are suffering terribly. Migrant workers are suffering. So please pray for India. Pray for the witness of the Catholic Church, uh, which is very strong. Um, I'll just mention there was recently an award in India given for the the most successful effective NGO in addressing the coronavirus crisis. And the award was given to Caritas, wow. uh, the development wing of the Indian Catholic Bishops Conference, Caritas India, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a, an indicator of the witness that the church is having. Um, my, my wife's parents, Rebecca's parents, run a Christian NGO that serves poor people. Uh, So the church is doing tremendous work. Pray for the the church and pray for our work as we try to, in response to the polarization we talked about, we're trying to depolarize debate in, in India so that different people can come together and relearn what has been India's great strength of uh, pluralism and uh, respect for difference. We both are associated with some 
something called the Archbridge Institute in Washington, um, which includes some wonderful Catholic leaders, including Andreas Widmer, who's on the board. And it's, a, it's a, an organization that promotes the fulfillment of, of the human potential through economic reform, political reform, and uh, social reform. So you can learn more about us and our work at the Archbridge Institute. We will certainly be praying, and thank you very much for all you do. I We wish you much success, and thank you for joining me on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you very much, Gracie. God bless you. Thank you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. Father Roger Landry, it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday, when for the second week in a row we will encounter John the Baptist proclaiming us, I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. The Old Testament priests and Levites from Jerusalem were coming to John at the Jordan, trying to figure him out. Who are you? They asked. He wasn't the Messiah or Elijah come to life again or the prophet Moses. Who are you? They asked, so that we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say for yourself? That's when John announced he was the forerunner of another the voice of the one calling us to conversion, coming after John, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and whose sandal strap John was unworthy to untie. Church tradition has always referred to John the Baptist as the precursor of the Lord, because as his father Zechariah said at John's birth, he would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. In the ancient world before Twitter and Facebook, text messages and the internet, televisions, radio, newspapers and posters, how would people be informed that a dignitary was coming to their town? Heralds would be sent out to alert everyone, to call them to attention, so that the one who was coming might be expected, desired and welcome. This is the service that John the Baptist fulfilled for the Lord's coming 2,000 years ago. This is the service the Church has him do for us every Advent. As Catholics, however, we're called not merely to receive and be grateful for the work of the Lord's forerunner. We're also supposed to become precursors in our own right. Jesus constantly has need of heralds to announce his presence and coming. And all of us, by our baptism and strengthened by our confirmation, have been consecrated to carry out this role. Jesus went to John and sanctified him from the, the womb and uh, within his mother Elizabeth so that he would later be his indomitable herald. The same Lord has chosen us, has redeemed and sanctified us at the beginning of our life in the womb of our mother, the church, which is the baptismal font, so that we might smooth out his paths and prepare others for his coming too. We're called, as John the Baptist said in Sunday's Gospel, to be a voice for Christ, to announce to others, in your midst there's one whom you don't know, one for whom you're searching, the only one who has the words of eternal life. The renewal that's meant to take place in each of us in Advent begins with our receiving John the Baptist's call and making straight for the, the paths for Christ to come to us. But it doesn't stop there. The fruit is for us to echo John the Baptist's call and help others likewise to prepare the Lord's way. This is the greatest gift we could give to anyone at Christmas. Now living in a world in which so many of the baptized are living day to day and even on Sundays, as if God doesn't exist, as if Jesus didn't come, as if God with us isn't really with us. They may say they believe in him, they may profess themselves to be Christian, but at a concrete level, the practice of their faith has grown cold or dead. They've ceased to live a sacramental life, they've stopped praying, both individually and in families. They've ceased, in short, to live as a Christian, even if they maintain a nostalgia for Christian values and some beautiful past experiences. Many of them have just drifted away from Christ because for one reason or another, they didn't really experience the fullness of his burning love. Or they turned away because they were scandalized by the behavior of someone supposedly who was Jesus' ambassador or follower. 
when we look out at the world, we see a people that very much needs precursors to introduce them for the first time or anew to Jesus. And we're called to be those forerunners. Popes Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis have been calling every one of us in the church to carry out the new evangelization, to preach the gospel anew to those who have been baptized so that they might enter into a full loving relationship with Christ and with us. This relationship with Christ is what everyone in the world truly needs. Yet so many are so distracted about what's most important in life that they're no more alert than the ancient innkeepers were to Christ's coming. When we talk about the new evangelization, there are several steps in it. These are the parts of our training to be Jesus' true precursors, the voice of him who's coming in precisely in order to save them. Let's talk about those steps. The first is prayer. All methods of sharing the faith are empty. All words will be cheap without the foundation of prayer. Second step is witness. People today trust witnesses more than teachers. We're often cynical from seeing so many hypocrites in politics at work among televangelists, even in the church after the sex abuse crisis. So people pay far more attention to those who walk the walk rather than just talk the talk. That's why it's so important for us not just to call ourselves Christians, but to live and behave as such. To put God first, to pray, to love the Mass, to be humble enough to go to confession when we sin, to be charitable and sacrifice ourselves for others, to live by the commandments, to enflesh the beatitude. In short, to be men and women who remind others of Jesus. For this witness to be effective, it has to be marked by joy. People are looking for true and lasting happiness. Jesus came so that his joy may be in us and our joy may be complete. We must be walking advertisements of the good news. That's a thought for us on this third Sunday of Advent for which we're preparing, which is called Gaudete Sunday or Sunday of Joy. The third part of the new evangelization is actually to speak about Jesus, to have the courage to talk about him to others, to tell them about his burning love and the truth he announces that sets us free, to remind them that he's very much alive and active in prayer and the sacraments, waiting for them. Fourth, to be an effective precursor, we can't merely speak to the masses. We have to be willing to become a true friend of the ones to whom we're introducing Jesus, the ones for whom Jesus died, but whose love they may be unaware. This type of one-on-one -on -one work is indispensable, like Jesus himself used with Nicodemus or Zacchaeus or the Samaritan woman. Finally, we should do all of this with an authentic Christian spirituality, which means a real docility and confidence in the Holy Spirit's working within us, who fills us with love for those for whom we're speaking and about whom we're speaking. The most beautiful moment in St. John the Baptist's life was when he encountered Jesus coming toward him at the Jordan. He shouted out, Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world, behold the one of whom I was speaking. On Sunday, we will have this same encounter. May the Lord, who's coming to us, fill our hearts with joy and courage so that we will be his precursors and share with others his saving Eucharistic loving presence in the world, making straight the way for them to receive and embrace with love the Lamb who is coming for them too. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 